0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is your faithful co-host, Nick Bogart. Joining, or, well, with me tonight is our faithful host, Tim Korkleski.
1: You're still terrible at this.
0: I know. I do it on purpose. (laughs) I want to be terrible at this. (laughs) Anyways, so, (laughs) tonight, (laughs) I'm broadcasting from... Colorado Springs, Colorado. Anyone out here? Hi. Actually, by the time you listen to this, I'll probably be gone. And uh, tonight, because I'm supposedly feeling free and we're talking about Free Blades, we have John Cleaves of DGS Games with us. How's it going, John? Going great, guys. Awesome. Glad to have you on. All right, so let's jump right into it. John, what can you tell us about Free Blades?
2: Well, the basics are that Free Blades is a 32 millimeter fantasy skirmish game. Uh, we make the models for it. The models are uh, white metal primarily, although we are just on our first resin model for a larger creature and um, exploring other options with resins, plastics, 3D printing, all kinds of other great things that are happening out there. But right now, predominantly white metal. <clears throat> um, it takes place, the game takes place or is set in our own fantasy world that we've developed called Phelon. Um A free blade is an adventurer for hire, and they group up into free bands and go off into the world to perform tasks for their patron, kind of like a land privateer. <clears throat> so some nobleman has something he'd done, they grab this band of adventurers and send them off to go do something. So the feel of uh, be, uh, the player, you know, uh, running a free band in a game, is kind of like an adventuring party. There's a leader, a caster, some number of heroes, and some number of followers. And the scenarios in the game are more um, adventure-based as far as their objectives than just all direct combat. So uh, the players will be uh, asked to kill the beast or uh, collect the treasure, um, stop the demons from coming through the witch gate, rescue the prisoner, these kinds of tasks. And so the Scenarios are um uh, uh, winnable by performing these objectives, regardless of how much fighting there is, of course, players being who they are, there will be fighting so um, <laughs> <laughs> so there's a, a combat element to it, but also trying to accomplish that and also get the test in the same time um, the uh, The mechanics are based around a, a system that we intend to use for multiple games, not just Free Blades. Free Blades is just our first one uh, where um, we use multiple die types. In fact, some die types that are really uncommon in games in that the uh, player is trying to accomplish something in the game, they have to meet or exceed a target number. That's pretty standard. Um, The better a model is at doing something, the bigger die it will roll in terms of number of its faces. That's also out there in the world. Uh, But what may be a little bit different for us is that we combine that with what a lot of games call exploding dice. We call spiking, where if you roll the top number on a die, you get to keep rolling and add them together. And then um, also some unfamiliar dice types or unusual dice types, uh, D14, D16, D18, D22. So we go straight through the normal progression of dice through D12, then 14, 16, 18, 20. Of course, 20 is pretty familiar to people. Um, then 22, 24, and on to 30. Eventually, the company that we do business with in DICE is going to make us some d 26s and D28s. But the the normal situation <laughs> will require a die that size. Um, <laughs> <but> the models in <laughs> the game that you start out with really don't have any statistics that are past D12, but spells, uh, other game effects, and the most important thing to us is playing in a league or campaign setting where these models skill up, uh, you know, advance in their abilities can rise to these die types, and of course that will be even more prevalent in the role-playing game that we're play-testing right now, and you know, your master level characters will eventually gain those those larger die sizes when they go to do something. That's important because a critical success in the game is 10 over what you need. So, if you're rolling a D8 or a D10, to get 10 over what you need, you generally have to spike it, but if you're rolling a D16 or a D20, you are rolling ad 16 or ad 20 you could get a critical success without having to roll the top number and roll again
0: That's interesting, and actually the the interesting thing I noted well, other than when I first got um got the samples you sent, I was looking through some stuff and I saw tokens and dice and i I looked in, and inside was this great big bag full of all sorts of dice. I went, "What in the world
1: just happened <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what's going on here. I think we, we both did that. We were like, whoa, hang on. Did we get a wrong right. order?
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: what are all these about? Yeah. So um, uh, when we were first sitting around deciding what we wanted to do, when, they, when the crew of us got together and said, hey, you know, we're tired of playing other people's games. Let's make our own game, uh, which is how it all started. Um, it has a lot of different options in the table. And, of course, a lot of games use uh, you know, multiple D6s, and the more you're, you know, the better you are at something, the more you get to roll. Um there are games out there that have, you know, increasing die size games. Savage World is a very famous one, which we're uh all fans of. Um we want to take it to another level and the mechanic of both being able to spike and having a uh a progression of what you can get for multiple levels of critical success in the game makes for some really epic stuff that happens um during the course of a couple of games. You'll you'll see some pretty crazy things occur. And what we like about that is, if we're watching a bunch of players play Free Blades at a game store, along with all of our other, you know, favorite games, we like to uh, see out there, and, and we play ourselves. What what we notice it's a little bit different is the Free Blades players will get done with a turn, and get up from their table and go over to the next table over and tell a story about what just happened. The crazy thing that just occurred in their game, or epic action, or uh, can you believe this? Just uh, uh, this is the way this went. And we like that because we want the game to tell a story, especially if the players are playing the connected games through a league or campaign. We want that to be an element of it.
0: Right. That that does sound kind of neat. Now, for, for a skirmish game and all that, having multiple kinds of dice is just – it's – I don't know. I can't think of any off the top of my head that do it.
2: Um, yeah, there's a couple out there that don't – they don't go the – to so the combination, I think that we do, but there's elements out, of it out there. We just wanted to kind of bring some familiar elements together and put them in a in, together in a way that's kind of unique to us. So we're not trying to portray it as like, hey, we're geniuses. We thought of something nobody else thought of, but we kind of put it together in a way that works for what we're trying to what we're trying to do. Um, we want to, you know, players like dice, you know, and uh, um, they like their dice, and so we do sell them. But, you know, there's no reason why. They're not proprietary to us. So if you've got your favorite, you know, color scheme or combination, that one that always seems to roll a 12 for you, you know, then uh, you can do that or you can get it from us if you want or whatever. But also there will be a little bit, just to be full disclosure, there will be a little bit of um, dice management when you're first playing the first couple games because not only do you need to, like, roll a certain die based on how skilled you are to get a hit in combat, or to accomplish a task, then you're going to roll another one for the damage the weapon produces, for example, or the spell causes. Um, And what we've done is we kind of built in sort of a pattern to that. All long swords always do D8 damage. All great axes always do D10 damage. So, after your first couple of games, that becomes kind of manageable because you know that when I shoot a longbow, all longbow arrows do D8. I know all heroes are generally D10 in their attack rating when they start out, uh, but the first couple of games might be, "Ooh, which side is that?" But that uh, that wears off very quickly, and then the players like it because then they have the ability to um, see that character grow, that 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 model grow through its stats uh, through um, uh, campaign play.
1: Cool. So. Oh. I- Doing the, the weapons in that way, where you say, like, all long swords are D8, all great axes are D10, in a way, then, a model can actually uh, not just, like, upgrade and become better at what he does, but he can also upgrade his gear. So if you got a guy with a sword, you might be like, you know what? I want to give him an axe instead. Is that, I take it that's something that's totally doable? It's
2: doable. We don't have a, we don't have a rules provision for that specific thing yet. Um, although we've talked about it, it was certainly a thing that we're going to do with the role-playing game and the skirmish game. Um, uh, the model has what the model has on it, and you don't want to have the player, you know, uh, uh, un, you know, have a model representing something and then having me something different kind of confuses opponent. Uh, certainly our fans convert their models uh, and can do anything with them once they get them. So if they take a model and say, I want to put a battle axe on it. Right now when you buy gear... When it comes to weapons, you're generally upgrading a weapon in terms of making it, you know, fine crafted or whatever you want to call it, improved, you know, uh, through uh, uh, being um, um, better constructed, you know. And so it does more damage or hits more easily or does whatever it does. Um, When we get to where we're going to sell plastics, where we have uh, some posable, you know, maneuverable parts, and then we'll accompany that with some rules that allow you to... uh, to change those out wherever you want. The other issue is um, these are characters in a story. You know, we want the players to identify with the background and enjoy the story we're telling with all these different factions and how they interact. And so, some of these uh, models are, are people in that background, and that person carried a longsword or carried a great axe and didn't like just have a you know a uh, a golf bag full of weapons and whip out whatever you know, seemed appropriate for that particular fight. And so that would be more common for the more generic model, the followers or whatever, to have that ability than it will be for some of these named characters to kind of represent somebody in the background.
0: All right. So you, you've mentioned it now a couple times. You said heroes and named characters. So are there just some general guys out there too, or how does that work?
2: There's both. It's absolutely both.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. So, do you have a henchman system and then a hero system? What are the differences?
2: Well, all of the followers are – one of their significant characteristics is they only have one life point. So if they lose a wound, they're gone. And we call that dropped because we don't know if they're dead yet until you go to the casualty table in a league game. I mean, they're out of a game, it's a one-off. We're just playing, you know, you and I are playing one game at evening. It's not connected to anything else. If right. it's uh, a campaign – and I have a follower lose his only life point. He's dropped for purposes of the game and taken off the table. But his fate isn't known until I go to a casualty table after the game is over to determine whether he survived his wounds or whether he's injured or whether he's uh, you know deceased. Unfortunately, and <laughs> it has to be replaced by recruiting a, a replacement for him. Uh, heroes are characterized by you know, the other characteristic of a follower is all their. Um, all the models in the game are rated for six role playing style characteristics. Um, generally, they're all wrapped up into one number, so you don't have to keep track of a lot of stuff. But some of the heroes start to get there, sort of separated out, meaning uh, we have strength, dexterity, agility, endurance, knowledge, and spirit. But if all of mine are the same, if they're all D8s, then I just have an ability rating of D8, and the model will only show a difference if one of those is higher or lower. So all followers are D6s in all their stats, and all heroes, unless it says otherwise, are D8s in their stats. Um, that's one of the, the characteristics. The other characteristic of heroes is they have two or more life points. So they're more survivable in the game. They're going to you know, last a little bit longer. Um, and it also means they can be healed uh, you know, through um, a healing spell. Uh, if a follower takes a life point, they're, they're down, so there's no way to heal them. Um, but if a hero takes one, you can heal that back and, and keep them in the game.
1: Okay. Okay, cool. So that was my next question was whether or not it was actually going to allow for, um, your followers that drop, if they could get back up or not. So basically if, if they drop, they hit zero, you can't heal them. Right. If, if one of your heroes takes a wound, he can be healed as long as he's not down.
2: Zero. Right. Yep.
1: Okay, cool. Okay. That makes sense.
2: And that's all integrated in, you know, we uh, it, from a design philosophy standpoint. Um, when we had to make choices when we we're making the game, um, one of our major, uh, you know, philosophical driving points was speed of play. Um, we could have made a lot of different choices, but when we came down to something where we're all sitting around saying, "Well, if we want to do A or B, we pick the faster one," you know, and so. Um, The model count is light. A starter game is about six models. It gets to be about 12, 16, 18 models at the top end. Um, And we want play over between two players who played before in about an hour and a quarter, hour and a half at the most. Um, Their goal is generally to have somebody playing two games of free blades for every one game, or they're playing something else. Uh, That's where we're trying to get to now. The more intricate the scenario, the larger the free band, or the longer it's been in play in a campaign, of course, it's going to take a little longer to play the game. And so uh, the followers feel like henchmen. You know, they go down fairly easily. The accomplish her. the one thing I asked them to do, maybe, and then uh, they, they they help me out in a fight, but they don't, they don't last very long. And the heroes kind of fight on um, kind of the way... Uh, you know cinematically, the way i 'd be seeing this play out in in kind of a movie setting, um you could tell who was who very quickly from watching the gameplay um you know who was who was going to have their name in the credits and who was going to have you know be soldier number four you know
1: right and Steve
2: <laughs> right me and <Midian> Steve exactly
1: <laughs> now one of the other things I noticed um when you sent us the material is that there 's also monsters in the game now. Do, for for the sake of, you know, assuming everybody is listening has, you know, th- this is new to them, the monsters, are they hired on each side for the factions, or do they pop in in some other means?
2: Mostly, the creatures are for um, certain scenarios. Um, there's two, uh, two or three. three, three scenarios in the collection. I think we're up to uh, 13 scenarios right now. Um, and I think three of them off top of my head have creatures in them that are part of the scenario setting. The first one is beast hunt and there's a big creature in the middle of the table, and the first side to to drop it wins the game. okay uh, their patrons up to some in the countryside. you want to be the free band that put it down and it gets bigger based on how big your two free bands are and so um, the scenario will tell you, based on how many points you're playing, basically, um, what size creature, what type creature you should be putting in the middle of the table to make it a challenge. Uh, then there's a scenario called Demon Infestation. There's three witch gates in the table. Demons are there and being spawned out of them, and the mission is to close them, close the gates so the demons can't continue to come through. But while you're doing that, you're dealing both with the other player and these demons that are popping out act, acting according to NPC rules. Or you can always have a third player come in and play the demons for you, which it doesn't seem
1: like there's any end of volunteers for that on game night. You know. you guys? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure, I'll do that. No problem. Um, you always find that one guy that's just watching and be like, hey, do you want to play the monsters? You get to beat up on both of us.
2: It was built. It was really built for. Right? One of the settings that we kind of targeted was that you know, you and, and three of your buddies are going to come down and play a big four-player game or two two-player games, and one of them can't show. There's always a situation where there's three friends at the game store. And there are several scenarios and situations uh, that we have that cater to that, you know, to kind of help that, that situation out. And that's one of them. Um, the third scenario is it involves creatures called the nest. There's a nest of creatures in the center of the table. There's a couple defending it, and more will start coming home as you begin to attack it, and you've got to destroy the nest before the situation becomes uh, uh, unmanageable. <laughs> so <laughs> so the creatures are there as, as components of those scenarios. Now in some cases, some of these creatures, because of the nature of the individual factions, can be taken as members of the free band also. That's part of that background story. So some... Some are dual purpose. You know, some can be used for a couple of different things. Um, but uh, it's more common that they're using the scenarios until they appear in the uh, freebie list.
1: Okay, gotcha. So the monsters themselves, they kind of level up at the same amount as the heroes. So if, even though you might be playing the same scenario you played before because your characters are better, the monster's going to be nastier.
2: Yes. Okay, yeah. awesome. Yeah. There's a, in fact, one of the creatures we just made um, called the Argrush. It's like a giant, um, uh, wear bear badger thing, big <laughs> monster thing. So it's tough enough that you really can't play the 150 level, the the starter level, against it because it will just run through a 150 point speed free band like nobody's business. So. But the idea is that you have kind of graduated challenges. The lower order creatures that are like lesser capability, they're designed for starter boxes. If you're a 300-point freeband or one that's skilled up to that level, um, you're not going to have a lot of problem with the – it's not really going to be a challenge to you to take it down. So they are, it is kind of stair-stepped up in terms of when you look how powerful you are, there's an appropriate challenge out there
1: for you. Right. Because otherwise, after a while, it would feel like, why are these monsters even on the board? Right. Okay, cool. So we talked a little bit about the rules. We talked a little bit about the fact that it's very scenario-driven, um, has a lot of RPG elements to it. Obviously, you're working on an RPG to go along with it, which makes perfect sense in my mind. Um, let's talk a little bit about the factions, because everybody always wants to know, what are the different factions in the game? How do they play? Tell me more about them.
2: Sure. So we're, <clears throat> we're up to nine factions. Um, we we kicked off with four, and we've done um, uh, we've made use of the Kickstarter uh, you know website, uh, we've been very successful with that. It's allowed us to get factions out about twice as fast as we probably couldn't without them. Um, and we've had the good fortune to be uh, to run five Kickstarters, fund all five, and deliver all five. Oh, so, wow. um, although we're small, we're not like you know a billion dollar Kickstarter, the Kickstarter guys love us because, you know, we're kind of what they intended to do. You know, we don't make these models before we take your money. You know, (laughs) we actually take the money and and go out into the sculptor and and the artists and whatever, and um, do it that way. So um, it it makes it a little bit of a struggle because we can't show all the sculpts as part of the Kickstarter promo, because we're actually going to take the money and go and, and have them made with that. Um, so we'll do the art in advance and then show that, uh, beforehand. And that, that system has been very, very, uh, beneficial to us. It's allowed us to gain fans and get these factions quickly. Now, as far as the nature of the factions, um, we have our own story being told in the world of fail but we also didn't want to leave the player without some familiar things that they, they, they are used to finding and want to find and they want to identify with. So, well, we have a faction called the Trillions that don't have the same backstory as traditional fantasy elves. If you're just going to play them, you know, they're going to look a lot like that. They're going to be able to move through woods. They shoot longbows. Um and have kind of uh foresty themed gear and and uh and clothing. Um and they have that that feel in terms of the way they play on the tabletop. Um our Khazaric faction is what you would find in traditional fantasy dwarves, different story in the background. I think that uh, most of those um, have in other game systems and other fiction, but they play that way. You want that, you know, they're kind of slower, but they're heavily armored. They have uh, hammers and crossbows, you know, you're going to find your home there. If that's something that you're interested in. And so it's true of the other factions as well. Uh, The two bandit factions are very, uh, finesse oriented if if you're not you you're not, you're not going to stand there in a in a prolonged combat you 're not very heavily armored, but you can do a lot of kind of tricky things on the table feels like you're some kind of master thief pulling off some shenanigans um, the uh, Falkarans, uh are kind of in the middle in terms of speed and armor um, but are basically you're professional adventuring crew. You know each individual member of the of the free bands got their thing that they're good at if you can put it all together like a puzzle um they're gonna be very effective if you try to have them kind of do all the same thing at the same time they're not gonna be very good at it um the heroillon are are knight faction the the hero models are all some version of uh well armored knight and the followers are all kind of uh peasants <laughs> you know um uh, uh, you know, hey, you come with me, grab your pitchfork, you know, that kind of thing. Um, let's see. So two bandits, the trillions, which are like, you know, uh, fill the same ecological niches, wood elves, the Khazark, which fills the same kind of ecological niches, dwarves, uh, Falcarns, professional adventurers, Herodelons, which is our knight faction, um, Grular, which are Mongols with demon allies. Okay, so you have, um, you know, horse archers and creepy things kind of mixed together in the same, uh, the same. Um, And that's one of the factions that has a very heavy content to it that can be uh, creature based, you know, about half that faction could be things that aren't human. Um, So if that's something that's people interested in, usually that's the faction that they gravitate to. Um, The Erdogar are barbarians sort of a mixture of Viking and uh, American Indian um, elements. The magic is very totemic, but you find your, you know, a berserker model. You're, you're uh, um, not wearing va- very much clothes, but carrying a big battle axe model. You know, those types of uh, of um, uh, adventurers are in that party. So if you're a barbarian player, the Erdogan would be for you. And... Uh, the newest action, the one we just did this year, that comes out for um, public release next month, the Trazorites. Uh, religious Zealot Romans on Dinosaurs. So, um, kind of, would be a very popular idea, actually. <laughs> so, um, religious <laughs> Zealot
1: Romans on Dinosaurs
2: they have um They have a couple of dinosaur riders in the faction. They also have a pack master who leads a group of uh smaller dinosaurs that aren 't um, aren 't very well disciplined on their own, but around him they 're more effective uh, so uh, but the the soldier part of the Trazerites is very roman theme you know a big shield a uh, a sword like a gladius uh, but the armor is dinosaur skin with a dinosaur head helmet you know. Um, so they uh, we released them they were a kickstarter this year so the kickstarter rewardees are actually just getting theirs now getting them shipped to them now and I have a little bit of plug here a month early I might add to that um, <laughs> but, uh,
0: excellent
2: actual day of release is Black Friday November 25th and so that's when they'll be you know ship out to stores to be available that day and when the uh, public can order them off the website so I excellent. think I think I've covered them all. I may have have missed one.
1: Yeah, I was kind of following along as you went, and I'm looking right now, and it's definitely more than nine factions. But uh, I know, I think...
2: We have nine released. We have a ton. Yeah. Yeah. The rule book talks about a bunch that we have not released yet, and sometimes some of those models will be previewed by being an ally or a model that's in a bandit-free band, you know, so the illusionist, for example, and the Blackthorn Bandits is a Mershale model, but we aren't—we haven't done the Mershale faction full up yet. But you kind of get a, a sense of what that will be like. Um, the, gladi- the gladiator, the gladiator, the the Cronin Misrikai, is an ally model that can be taken in a lot of the free bands. Um, but his home faction isn't uh, isn't out there yet. So you can read about the other ones on the website and the rule book, and you can also see some of these. Uh, models previewed as uh, allies or bandits until their uh, their faction gets done full up.
1: Okay, cool. So y- you definitely have a plan as to how these are coming out. Like you're you're very methodical. You're not just go- you're not just throwing stuff at the wall and see what sticks.
2: Well, um, I take we'll to talk about that because that's something that's really important to us. We're all we're all gamers. All members of the company are gamers first, um, and. Uh, we love all these other games too. You know, of course, Free Blades is our first big love, but you know, we play a lot of other things. And one of the things we set out to do was try and address some of the things that we didn't necessarily match up on in, in other games that we played. And one of those, and, and these things aren't like, people aren't out there doing evil things. These are just the way things work out. But if you're doing your factions kind of in a row, where you do faction A, B, C, D, then when you go to do E, you sit around and have a design conference and you think about what you want to do, you're going to come up with great ideas. The issue is when you do those great ideas, you might have wanted one or two of them in one of your original factions, but you really can't go back and do that. And that is a tendency for the player to at least perceive that the most recent faction to come out has got all the good stuff. Right. Right. So in order to try to prevent that when we did we have a very long deliberate process before we released the first You know the rule book the first time um, To play test at least the core ideas of all these factions together first before we released. them So even though faction 17 is way in the future Those models have been tested, or the way their weapons work and the way their armor works and the way their magic works has been tested against the factions that are already out here. And when we have a good idea, we decide where it fits based on what faction it belongs in in terms of its theme and its effect on the table, um, even if it's not one we currently publish. You know, oh, that really belongs with the Cronins. Well, the Cronins aren't for a couple years. Well, too bad, because when they come out, they need to be, you know, have this uh, uh, this spell or this weapon or this uh, talent associated with them because it fits their theme. It doesn't really fit uh, something we've made before, maybe something we're working on right now. Um, and that is really, I got to say it's really paid dividends for us because um, I really do think there's a couple of places where we would have, you know, kind of stored up some good ideas and had them all kind of after some of these original um, factions are released and it would have been perceived that, Hey, that's, um, uh, you know, that seems cooler to me than the things that you've already done. Another place that really helped us was if we had a game effect that was coming, but it was thematic for an original faction to have a counter to it or something that addressed it. We would give that original model, that or ability, even though the thing that was coming wasn't in the game system yet. And a couple of our early players are like, "Hey, what does this model have this talent for?" Nothing in the game it really affects. Oh, it's coming, you know. <laughs> so, um, and all of a sudden, the model or the the, ta- the faction that that kind of addresses shows up, and it's like, "Oh, that's what that's for," you know. And so I think it gives the players confidence that we've kind of looked as far ahead as we possibly could and and addressed some of those things. Um, it also comes into play in we have. Factions released maybe two three years ago. They're going to still get models. You know, it's, it's not like we're going to do it, you know, in 2013 or 2014 and then be done with them. They're going to keep getting models over time. And those ones that they're getting are, you know, possessed of talents and abilities and weapons that fit the whole scheme for that um, uh, faction, but also bring some new capabilities in to keep that faction fresh. So if I'm like, I invest in Harrod-Ellens, which is an original faction from 2012 or 2013, and uh, I see this new cool stuff coming out, I have confidence I'm going to be getting new cool stuff too. That's already kind of in playtest, fought against those, and integrated with those well in the background and uh, the way the game works.
1: Okay, cool. So that I guess that you, you answered a question that I had, is that you're kind of taking the approach that you, you do a faction, and you're not like, okay... So all the stuff for, say, Grular's out, we're done. So there's going to be constant releases for it.
2: No. No. Okay. Yeah, that's right. We're not going to do that. Um, Because, you know, it might be that you might think something else that's coming out later is cooler, but you personally identify with one of these early factions, and that's the one you kind of call home. The players just, you know, a lot of players tend to, I know I do that, and a lot of players do. That's always been the I've been most comfortable with or the one I identify with the most, but we don 't want to have that get stale. you know we want to constantly be um, uh, adding capability to it to keep it at the same level of all the other things that are being brought into the game system. It gets more challenging the more faction have. obviously it's just it's a just math you know <laughs> right. as you go along it 's going to get more challenging, but that 's a a challenge we to address.
1: Awesome. OK, cool. So that, that was I mean, I've seen that happen with a few games where it, it is a bit of a concern. I've heard it with a, a few skirmish games out there where they're like, you know what, we're going to do this faction. We're done. We're moving on to the next one. And it's kind of like, well, what does that what does that say? If like I've already collected everything for this faction, you know, like that doesn't leave me any more excitement in the game. Right. So I'm, I'm glad that, you know, you guys are kind of pushing forward in that method where it's like, OK, here's a good chunk of the faction. It's just not done yet right okay cool i definitely i definitely like that so walk us through you you're saying that free blades is built more i mean obviously yes there's balance there's things of you know you have unique rules however you said that when you're designing rules for the game you always err on the side of speed of play and you said that you want to see about two games of free blades get played in the same amount of time of it would take say like you know, a, a typical Warhammer fantasy game, which is normally, you know, two and a half to three hours. So you're, you're looking to try to jam in two games in that time frame, And it's very scenario based. How does, how do we, how would you go about setting that up? So let's say you and I were to sit down and play, or you and Nick were to sit down and play. You determine your points. How do you go about selecting what scenario to play and getting the board set for that?
2: Uh, we play on a, a, a typical game is played in a four by four surface, um, which is common in you know we're we're very supportive of of uh, of game spaces you know whether it's uh, you get together at your local community center or church or you get together especially in the game uh, area of a local retail store you know game store um, that's kind of like the you know the common setting that we see the game get played in. And 4x4 is easier than 6x4 because even if the game space has a 6x4 table, it gives you a place to put your stuff, you know. Um, and because of games like War Machine, uh, 4x4 terrain, you know, uh, uh, is available. You know, the terrain surface and the, uh, you know, buildings and uh, hills and forests and whatever to play with at the store. So that's kind of the setting. So that's, you know, something that's going to be commonly available Fairly easy to set up. There's a terrain rule in the rule book for how to set terrain to the table. There's a terrain rule in the rule book for what the characteristics of the terrain are. We can't possibly describe every combination of terrain that, you know, two people could come up with in a game store, you know, anywhere in the country or anywhere in the world for that matter. Um, but we try to give the players enough guidelines. They can say, oh, that's a very high wall or that is a piece of rough terrain, you know, and they decide, you know, what it's going to be. So they set that up very quickly. And then uh, the scenarios, well, so there's a, and I have to say this real quick, there's a core rule book. You know, it's a, the printed rule book that you find in the game store. And there's a companion to it that's a download off the website. The Free Rules Companion um, adds everything after the core rule book in one place. It's six bucks. Uh, and once you get it, you get all the updates for free. So you never have to buy anything else once you've done that um, to as far as keeping that updated so all of the scenarios, including all the ones that have come out since the core rule book, are all in the companion and um, they're listed you know one to twelve so you can just roll the die and, and choose one randomly if you don't come into the room already having decided what you want you know so uh, I've been in listened to and been part of a million Freeblade scenarios conversations. Hey, what do you want to play? I don't care. What do you want to play? But they roll a die, you know, and that's how they pick the scenario. Or I'd really like to try Beast Hunt because I know it's in the next tournament and I'd like to... I haven't played it yet, you know. So there's, that, that situation really resolves itself one way or the other fairly quickly in terms of which one you choose. Um, and then, uh, you know, setup is fairly quick. We do make a token set that has like uh, objective markers and loop markers in it, but players can use whatever is convenient to them, whatever they like to use um, to to kind of, you know, put that on the table. Uh, We make the creatures, although I know, for example, a couple of enterprising players that have like, you know, grabbed a couple of models they like that are creatures for the beast hunt and written some rules for them and kind of thrown them into the game. In fact, in a couple of cases we're looking at, Partnering with them to maybe make a creature form or write a write a rule for what they're doing that we can make official, you know Um, So That that happens that part happens pretty easily pretty naturally as far as keeping the game to a certain time limit the number one decision we made was to go you go I go in the um, sequence of play but with reactions because we had every every skirmish game methodology on the table when we first started in terms of what we might use random activations, card-based activations, sequence, you know, all the different options are out there, and nothing was faster than first player, second player. The problem with first player, second player is, um, without any ability for the second player to react, the first player could just charge all of the stuff into the second player's models pick all the combats that were advantageous to them the second player wouldn't have anything to do about it. So we couldn't have that either. So the way it works is that if you haven't moved yet and a model comes to go into contact with you, you have several uh, reactions that you can make. And that with, coupled with a low model count, um, you know, has that go very, very smoothly. So a person moves all their models, if the other player hasn't gone yet, they have some reactions they can make. And uh, they have two or three per model. Some of them are generally fairly obvious which ones they want to choose. And that all happens much faster than moving through a card deck, pulling a marker out of a bag, um, <clears throat> have it be alternating, you know, or all awesome, but slower. And, uh, we feel, we hit kind of a sweet spot, um, with that. And that is one of the things I think that keeps the, the games, um, uh, you know, moving in a very manual manner. You also only have one caster in a free band and at the basic level, they can only cast one spell for, per turn. So the magic phase is not really a resource allocation event. And generally speaking, you come into the next turn already knowing what it is you want to cast. So that's not a very complex or lengthy process either. And so those things in combination um, keep the game flowing at a, a very fast pace.
1: Nice. Okay, so, I mean, it sounds like you did a lot of the research on it, as far as what you wanted to do, as far as the system. Now, you said that the second player that activates has reactions. What can those reactions be?
2: Okay, so if I'm, um, uh, we call it free blades etiquette. If I'm going to move a model into contact with an opposing model that has not moved yet, is old or has not moved, um, that, that model is eligible to react. They have one of several options. The most common of them are to countercharge. So if I'm having some model come into into contact with me to do combat, I can countercharge them so that we meet kind of in the middle and we both count as charging instead of me having to take it at a standstill. Um, I can take it where I stand uh, and have that model go into contact with me and just be where I am. Um, That gives me the option on my turn the second player's turn to do a break off, which has some risks to it, but it gives me that option. Or I could get some more friends involved um, uh, by standing there. I have the ability to try to evade, which means I will move away from the model trying to come into contact with me and and uh, avoid, you know, being uh, engaged in melee combat. Um, if I'm also, if I'm an archer, if I have a range attack, I could stand there and do a Range reaction attack or stand and shoot, it's called in some game systems, and get my shot off before I have to fight uh, this model in melee. And those are kind of the big four, you know. And okay. um, between those, um, the choices are, you know, I mean, if you're a big armored hero and you get a lot of friends near you, you just say, I'll stand. If you want to meet this, you know, model in the middle and both kind of charging and sort it out between the two of you, uh, you say, counter charge. If you've got a bow, Generally, you say, I'll stand and shoot. I'll do a range reaction attack. If you're a, a caster wearing a T-shirt <laughs> and somebody with a battle axe is running down on you, you, I think I'll try to evade, you know. So that, that, that situation is kind of um, 90% of the time is fairly obvious. Maybe one time in, in five or ten, you have to make it, sit there and make a decision real quick about which one is best for you. But generally speaking, they're, uh, they're fairly obvious.
1: Okay, cool. So you basically have the options of kind of saying, look, I'm going to, you know, you got some giant barbarian coming down on you with an axe. You're not just going to stand there like an idiot and just let him crack you in the skull. You're going to try to do something in the meantime.
2: Right. And so in, the, in this system of uh, melee combat, there's a sequence to it. Um, those models that have some ability to stand off, like a model with a pike or a spear that stood, gets to attack first. Then it's models that charge, and then it's by discipline. And if all those things are equal, like two charges at each other and they're both D10 disciplined, their effects are going to be simultaneous on each other. But if um, I'm standing there and I'm a D10 disciplined, but I'm charged by someone, charging counts first, that model will resolve its melee attack on me before I get to fight back. If it drops me, I'm not going to do anything to them. So that's usually the, the primary driver of where I'm going to choose to fight this person that's uh, coming into contact with me.
1: Okay, cool. So how are melee combats resolved then? Because you talked about, like, charging in, meeting them in the middle, possibly dodging. So you said, so, for example, if a ranger's got a bow and using that same barbarian with a giant axe, he shoots the arrow at the barbarian but maybe misses or doesn't do enough damage, the barbarian's going to come into contact. Then I assume at that point they go into melee? Yes. Okay. So how is that normally resolved?
2: So uh, a typical warrior hero uh, starts, you know, before they've been in a campaign and skilled up. And a melee attack rating, or mar of D10. That's very common for heroes. Okay. And, and everything in the Freeblades game system, if you're trying to do it, it's exceed, meet or exceed. So I have to meet some target number or beat it. If I'm trying to block it, uh, parry, dodge, counterspell are the three most common. I have to exceed what was rolled. Okay. So if I'm coming in to attack this archer who missed me, poor, poor soul, um, the typical defense of a model is either 4 or 5. The standard defense is 4, it's 5 if you have a high agility or a shield or, or some other advantage. So if I come in with this D10 melee attack rating, I've got to make a 4 or 5 or higher on my D10 in order to secure a hit. Fairly simple, you know. Um, uh, I mean, fairly likely, I should say. Um, and if I hit, then I roll the weapon's damage, and I compare that number to the other model's armor value. And if I meet or exceed that, I cause a loss of one life point. Okay. If I, come in and I hit and I get ten over what I need, like if I come in and I roll my d10 and I needed a four because the other model's got a four defense, and I roll a ten and then a four and I get a fourteen, I'm ten over what I needed. I get a critical hit. Crit- the critical hit effect is to auto spike the damage roll. Okay, so. A spike is when you roll the highest number on a die So if my great axe also does d10, I'm going to start my damage roll with 10 if I get a critical hit Okay, and then I'm going to add to that if I meet or exceed the other models uh, Armor value I cause a life point lost if I'm 10 over on damage I cause an additional wound for every 10 over I am
1: Okay, okay So. If, the, if you spike on a damage roll and do well enough, you can actually, like even heroes can go down in one shot.
2: No one is safe in free blades. <laughs> okay. So the combination of what you just said and the fact that these dice spike means that there's no super powerful hero that can wade into a group of models and feel like I'm invulnerable. The lowly right. is with his, you know... D6 Mar and D4 Dagger can take down the best model in the game, you know. Um, and in fact, that's where the excitement comes from, you know, the unusual things that happen. Some, you know, you two heroes are fighting, clash, clash, nothing happens. They parried each other. They dodged each other, what they did. And some peasant army comes in and puts down the, the enemy knight, you know, because he rolled a 26 in his D4, you know. Um, that, gets the, that gets the room talking. That gets the free blades players up from their table and around and say, you would not believe what just happened. This, you know, um, six-point model just did in this guy. So you have, to, you have to accept some risk. You can't just go out there with your hero class model and think, I'm just going to wade through, you know, all these people. Um, and part of that plays into the pylon rule. The more models there are around you, each one drops your defense by one point. Um, that creates a situation where a critical hit is more likely because the target number is lower. So a group, of, a group of followers can get around a, a highly skilled, heavily armored hero and, and take him down just by sheer weight of numbers, which feels right. You know, I, I I'm going to beat up this one peasant by myself, but if there's five of them, I'm, I could be in trouble.
1: Right, because they're going to just start jumping on and just take you to the ground, kind of this kind of yeah. thing going on.
2: One of them is going to stick a, you know, a dagger in the chink in your, you know, armor between your arm and your, and your body or something.
1: Right. Awesome. So it it sounds like it's fairly simple to resolve. I mean, obviously there's a lot of reaction and things like that that you can do, but it's fairly simple to resolve. So I could see where, you know, if people, if people were to glance at the rule book or the basic rules and kind of be like, whoa, hey, hang on, there's a lot going on. It's really not that bad. It's just saying, Here's all of your options that are available. They're all very simple to use. You just have to determine which one you want to use. Right. Okay. Cool. So you also you also mentioned the spell casting. How did, does that change at all based upon the the basic concepts of the rules, or does that still very much work the same?
2: Uh, it works the same. Um, a caster has a caster rating, like uh, you know, fighters have a melee attack rating and archers have a range attack rating, and that's used to cast spells. They start with. Um, uh, a type of magic uh, and that provides each caster nine spells. They start the game with um, Each one costs more or less power to cast and each caster starts with a certain amount of power, which is a limited resource and um, The target number for 90% of the spells is two So fairly easy to pull a cast off. I get a d10 caster rating. I'm only going to fill in a one I'm going to get most of my spells off um, and if you successfully cast and you have the spell, have whatever effect it has. I heal a life point. I shoot a D8 missile at, at uh, some nearby model. Um, I summon uh, uh, a creature, a minor creature, in, into the game, a spirit warrior, um, a giant snake, uh, for the snake mystic. Um, the challenge is, is that spells can be counterspelled. And so if the other caster is near me or the target and can see me or the target of the spell... Um, They can pay the same amount of power. I did and if they roll higher my spell is blocked. So even though the target number is really low for 90% of spells the better. I roll the more the more protected my spell is from counter spell and so there's a little a a very Small in terms of number of models, but a very effective sort of tactical decision to make with your one caster Um, So you're not doing it all over the table um, you don't have a hundred decisions to make and a lot of spells to choose from. Generally speaking, in any given turn about three or four of your nine spells are going to be the ones that are most useful to you based on that situation. So you don't have a big decision-making process there. I pick it. Um, and part of it might be which one is most vulnerable to the other caster's ability to counter it. Um, and I spend the power. Oh, it might have to do with how much power I have left. Spend the power, takes the cast, roll the die. And if I succeed and he doesn't block it, then I, uh, or she doesn't block it, then I have whatever the spell effect is. Um, the game is meant to not be. There's no such thing as some devastating spell that just lays a hundred models flat. You know, the the magic and the shooting are more supportive of the melee and adventure portion of the game.
1: Okay, oh, cool. a- so it, it definitely doesn't allow for like you to just turn like one guy into basically what turns into a mobile weapons platform where he just flies around shooting everything. Yeah. Unabashedly. Okay. So it makes magic feel magical.
2: It's, well, it's, it's subtler. I mean, it's, you know, if you're, if you're used to a game and we, we like all these games, you know, it's not like we're, um, um, uh, better or worse, just different. But if you're used to a situation where spells have, you know, uh, 24 inch radius effect and, and effect, you know, 10 or 15 different models You're going to look at these fellas and go, well, these are really tame and, and effectively in that in that light. That's true but the in a critical combat where um, I really need this one thing to go down to buff that Warrior on your side by two die levels with just a simple buff spell could be, you know, the thing that turns the tide um, Yeah and so people get used to that fairly quickly, too. They come in, maybe they have a different experience when they come in with Magic. But once they've played a couple times, they know this, this didn't sound to me like it was very, you know, uh, earth shattering when I first read it. Now I see what it does. Oh, my God, you know. And so um, uh, I, think we've, I think we've found a good, a good balance there for what we're trying to achieve.
1: Nice, nice. Yeah, it, it, that, that's always, it's always key when it comes time to designing your game, is kind of finding out what do you want the power level to be. You know, in, in a game like this, I definitely see it to where you don't want you don't want your heroes to feel like they're too over the top, especially if you've got followers. Because otherwise, it turns into a game where it's like I can run three heroes and you can run fifty followers, and it's a fair fight. Well, who wants to paint up fifty of the same vanilla dude?
2: Yeah, that uh, <laughs> yeah, it's not an issue. <laughs> it won't take fifty followers to bring that hero down. Only about maybe four. <laughs> right. I have, I just, I'm picturing a game I played the other night. I had the, uh, the leader of the Trazerites who's mounted on a dinosaur. You think you're pretty, you know, badass, but, uh, uh, my uh, opponent got four of her followers onto, onto him and I couldn't put them down fast enough. They eventually dragged me off that dinosaur and, and, you know, beat me to a pulp. So, um, uh, you don't need to have that kind of ratio in order to, um, uh, to get the lesser capable models to have a serious effect on the game.
1: Nice. Yeah, I, and that was one of the things I was kind of noticing as I was reading. It's like even even if you take your your weak followers, as the games start leveling up, it's like all it really takes for you is to have that one gotcha moment where you you trap the one hero between three followers. They'll drop that guy. Yes, true statement. Awesome. And I, I definitely like that. It It makes it to where you don't feel like, you know, Because that's one thing I noticed with with certain other games that I've played in the past, and, you know, uh, certain games do it better than others, but, like, there's certain games where it's, like, you have these minions, and you almost feel like, okay, I guess I gotta take some of them, but, like, what are they really here for? Like, they're gonna grab a treasure marker, they're gonna run over here, and they're gonna cower in the corner for the rest of the game, because I don't want to get them in combat kind of stuff. Where this game, it's like, okay, yeah, it's a follower, it's not as cool as this hero, but... If I get two or three on this hero, that hero's in trouble.
2: Right. Now, I will say, I will add to that though, that we we joke around the you know, Freeblade's world that follower is meant to be literal. You know? So mm-hmm. if you come crashing across the table and your followers are out in front, the enemy archer or spellcaster or whatever is going to, you know, reduce that fairly quickly. So it is still meant to be that the more successful thing over time to be to lead with your heroes and have them act heroic, you know. And the followers will be doing things like running around and and checking out treasure markers or or accomplishing some of these other uh, side tasks. Um, But they also join in with their uh, hero brethren to kind of turn the tide into key combat. And I think the feel of that is right, you know. The camera should be on the hero. Um, Yes. But that one... That one dude that steps up, you know, out of, the, out of the ranks. And, of course, there's a couple results on the uh, advanced table for campaigns called Rise of a Hero, where that follower becomes a hero. Sweet. Um, and so, and I, you know, like I said, I'm not going to try to portray that we've, like, you know, unlocked the secrets of game design and done things nobody's ever done before. We're all gamers. We, we, we're, we're creatures of our own experience. Um, a, lo- a couple of us are old Blood Bowl players, for example. And we're big fans of their um, uh, handicap advancement system. Uh, probably had a lot of influence on, on what we did because we really wanted the campaign to um, address getting cool advances for your models and and have them become unique fairly quickly, but also address situation where somebody just had some bad luck and they, you know, lost a couple key models or didn't advance very well in a couple of places and they want to stay in the campaign, but they don't feel competitive, we built a handicap system that kind of, um, you know, addresses that. So if I come into a campaign game and I'm short, you know, the other person's free band value, I get a bunch of bennies that make it worth it for me to play the game. And that's in addition to the story of, I had that one Pikeman became a hero, and now I've got, you know, this uh, 2 wood model with... <laughs> better stats that, that get to, gets to roll in the future on the hero advance table and so the follower advance table and can follow that model's story through the rest of the campaign um, is kind of a fun element that the, the players really uh, latch
1: on to. Yeah, I definitely like that because th- that's one thing I've noticed with uh, you know some of, some of the classic uh, campaign-based games that they, they've had in the past. It almost felt like if you were a new player trying to get involved it was kind of like, yeah, sure, you could, but there was no way for you to. There was no way for you to step in and like equal footing. It's like you either, you basically stepped in and took your lumps until something leveled up, or um, you just kind of waited for the next campaign. And to me, that always seems kind of. We
2: we think we've been successful there, and you know, we I'm not trying to make you know portray a situation where every decision we've made has been a good one because that is not true. Well. <laughs> I think one of the places where we did make a good decision is in addition to, like, if I come into a game and you've got a free band value of 300 and I've got a free band value of 200, that's a big, 100 points is a big gap. Um, there's two ways to handle that. One is um, we have a handicap system which allows you to buy temporary models for that one game, uh, including heroes if you have slots available with a little bit of a surcharge in terms of the handicap points. If I come into a game where you've got 300 and I've got 200, I get 100 handicap points. It's not gold to recruit permanent models. It's just points that kind of cover me for this one game. And I can hire heroes if I have slots available and followers and a little bit of a surcharge over their gold cost. Um, Destiny stones, which are re-rolls basically in the game, and in addition, when the game is over, I will get one extra adventure point, which is an experience point, for every 10 difference we are. So that game right there, no matter what else I do in that game in terms of earning experience, is going to give me 10 adventure points. You know, And that, I think, is one of the smartest things that uh, we collectively chose to do um, because that alone is making it worth it for that player to come in and, and kind of You know, I'm going to take these hirelings. It's going to kind of catch me up a little bit to the other guy, uh, to my opponent. And um, in addition, when I come out of it, I'm going to get, you know, experience points for my models that represent the fact that I took on somebody way tougher than me and and hung in there. And uh, the feel of that's right, and I think the players, you know, um, find that valuable enough to make it worth it. Because we don't want the campaign to kind of – you know, sort of run down of its own weight because it's, you know, the haves and have nots, you know, and that allows you to catch back up in free band value fairly quickly as your models kind of advance at a certain rate to get, get you back into the game. And I, I think it's work for us. I mean, it's not, it's not perfect. You get too, you know, too far behind, there's really nothing to be done. So the other thing that we do is you also have the option to come into a game and two players that have a different free band value, um, they can, uh, kind of all in where the player with the lower number sets the number. Like I come in, I've got 200 points. We're going to play a 200 point game, but the player with a 300 point value is going to play his 200 best points. Right? So he's got a free band that's, you know, uh, 300 points in value, which includes the value of the advances that he's gotten since he was been, been playing the league in terms of skill ups, you know, uh, um, additional talents and skills in his models. And he, the player with the lower value says, I got 200, that's what I've got. And the other player takes the best 200 of his or her 300 to play the game with. That also seems to work like a charm. Um, It also allows us to do things like in the middle or at the end of a campaign, we'll have a big participation battle that says, hey, bring your league free bands to game night. We're going to play a big multiplayer scenario and we're going to set the value at 300, you know. And so the people that are lower than that buy up to it. And the people that are higher than that take their best. And so everybody's got a 300 point free band, but you know, there's going to be a little bit different quality in terms of some are going to have that gap made up by hirelings and some are going to have that gap, you know, um, covered by the fact that they are more skilled, more,
1: uh, they've been at it for a while,
2: but you know, they're They're, experienced. They've advanced, uh, through the experience chart, gain some points that way. So he, both of those methods are available to the players, and I think that they do as good a job as you can do, you know, to make uh, make that situation uh, palatable to the player to come in and play if they're short on the on the points value.
1: Right. Yeah, I, I definitely appreciate that because the fact that you guys have taken the time to kind of say, look, you know, if you're just getting into the game, even if there's an experienced group of people – you should never feel like you're out of it like just by jumping in the middle of a campaign you should never feel like you're out of it so i, I definitely like the fact that you you've given it a you've given it a way for people to jump in and play and kind of get a chance to catch up um now you did mention that the the game is played on a 4x4 and there's various different kinds of terrain however i'm guessing as a skirmish game that t- this takes a lot of terrain or does it, it does it use a varying terrain based upon scenario, or is is there kind of like a, a standard?
2: We put a we put a suggested standard in the rule book. Um, you know, if you had zero frame of reference, you just wanted to know what would be, you know, something that made sense. Uh, we put that into the core rules, but really, you know, um, we've 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 done and seen it all. You know, we've had, you know, rocky deserts, jungles towns, you know, with multiple buildings and alleys and streets, you know. um, And and in our, when we run a tournament, we do the same thing. We try to have as varied uh, a terrain set as possible so the player has to face each kind of challenge uh, as they go through. So um, really that's, uh, I, I would not feel comfortable giving the player any more than kind of a suggested amount to get started with. Um, because I, I think they should, they should see it all. You know, they should be out in the plains. They should, you know, fight in a town or a swamp or a ruin or, um, underground, you know, uh, in some, uh, you know, cavern or dungeon setting, you know, um, you know, I want there to be a,
1: beyond the player's imagination. Nice. Okay, cool. So it, it really it it does allow you for you to vary it as much as possible use as little terrain or as as much terrain as you have available. Um, okay. But, uh, so when it comes, when it comes down to that, you, you mentioned that there's different areas to play. I assume that like based upon the fact that you guys have actually done a decent job of like expanding upon, uh, the world itself that like, you know, if they're, if they're playing in say like, uh, uh, Trillius or some of the other areas like that, that like you, you kind of have like recommended terrain for that area, and if yeah, people are, kind of know this yeah. is the kind of terrain that happens here.
2: We ha- we haven't done that outside of the company yet. We we've, we've been messing with that as a um uh as something we want to put out there to to players and and give them to be able to use um and uh, but we haven't officially published some that's coming. So you won't, you won't find that necessarily in the rule book where it says, hey, if in your story this is taking place in, you know, Western Falcar this is kind of the kind of terrain that you ought to have there as opposed to, um, you know, inside the deep with a Trillius or whatever. Um, but that's something that we really been messing with and want to put out to the players. Uh, and a lot, you know, except for the companion, all of our online downloads are free, you know, and that will be a free product where we just put it. A short couple of pages on. Um, Here's some suggestions based on um, uh, if you want to be kind of be linked to the story. And the reason why we haven't done it yet is we want part of that to include some better suggestions for the player on how to move their games indoors if they want. Because we don't want there to be a a limit on uh, of any kind on where the setting should be. And it's an adventure based game and it's got a strong role playing element. So, at some point, you need to go down to the dungeon, man. It's just part of the deal. So, um, and there's a lot of great products out there beyond making some terrain model of that. There's all these, you know, uh, um, Dungeon Dragons and Pathfinder and whatever tiles and maps with the square grids, you know what I'm talking about? Um, yeah. Players use. We want to give a little bit of help in terms of translating that into Free Blades. Uh, play, you know, now there's already rules in the game for doors and windows and, and, um, um, some interior lighting, you know, uh, environmentals. We want to make that a little bit clear, a little bit more formal, um, to help them out. And then, uh, and then show a couple examples of how you play the scenario out using a couple of these maps put together that give you an interior setting, if that's what you want to, what you want to do and include that in a, a overall kind of terrain helper product that, you know, kind of give some of that guidance on a regional basis, you know, to kind of tie to the background. I'm really, you know, glad you mentioned that because it's something we really have been wanting to do for a little while now. And, and I think we're closer.
1: That's okay. On this podcast, we like to spill trade secrets, even though you don't want to talk about them. So, you know, we're good on that. uh...
2: (laughs) I love talking about stuff that's coming.
1: (laughs) Nice. Nice. Well, you know, I'm sure we can go on and on and on about this. However, we do try to keep this to about roughly one hour. Nick, I know that you've been kind of quiet in the background for a little bit like you normally are. Yes, I'm going to rib you about it even more. Uh, is there anything else you want to throw in there real quick?
0: No, not really. Um, thanks for coming on. Uh, you know, it's great to hear more about the game. and uh, I've, I've been enjoying the miniatures. I haven't, I haven't done a lot with them, but I've got a couple of them painted now.
1: By painted, he means terribly. But anyway,
2: um, so the model's <laughs> a good model. I say, you know, we're really, we're really lucky to work with some of the artists and the, the artists and sculptors that we do. We're very blessed. There's some super people, and they're extremely talented. And we couldn't do what we do without them, you know. So uh, I'm glad you like them because uh, you know we're we're trying to have that be the best quality we can make it.
1: Yes, definitely. I, I actually, I've got my Grular built. I just got to get them painted. Uh, I'm trying to think of an armor color scheme. I, I, I t- tend to not go for the stock studio paint job. So as much as I like the purple, I'm doing something different. I just haven't decided what yet.
2: Yeah, we love that. Those are your models. And there's, you know, there's uh, there's all kinds of tribes of Grular, you know. Uh, some of them probably don't, uh, don't accept the... Uh, Uh, central government's uh, purple and black. So, you know, whatever you do is the right answer.
1: That's kind of what I think about it. But anyway, so, John, uh, (laughs) is there anything else you want to say before you go? Uh, Plug the website, plug Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that social media stuff that all these crazy young kids love nowadays.
2: uh, The website's www.dgsgames.com. We do have a forum that we recently rebuilt. There's not a lot of message traffic on. Although I would say that most players interact with us through Facebook than either Twitter or the uh, web page. And that's uh, we have a DPS Games business Facebook page, but also freeblades Players, which is the uh, Facebook page for just you know asking questions and trees and meeting other people and 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 posting pictures of your models and doing all that sort of thing. the uh, uh, Twitter is world of fail on, and I think Google Plus is DGS games, but I don't. I don't, I don't have that off the top of my head. I have to look at it. No, up. no,
1: nobody uses Google Plus. It's okay if you don't know it.
2: <laughs> hey, you know, a, you know, it's a challenge because we don't want to. Um, uh, we don't want to like you know, pick and choose the the the, pe- the player today. You know, they have personal preferences on how they want to interact. Um, and we're not going to say we're only going to do this and none of those other ones. We just, there's only so many of us and we're trying to uh, share the work, uh, amongst ourselves to contact the players with as many different means a- as they want to. So wherever we're always looking to grow in that area too. So whatever is not used today becomes a trend or people jump on that. We're going to find a way to, uh, to engage with them there.
1: Awesome. Well, John, I got to say, thanks so much for coming on and talking to us about FreeBlade's we definitely have to do this again in the future when you have a couple more releases out, uh, some new scenarios and things of that nature, a little bit of a follow-up, talk about new stuff coming out. Um, Nick, is there anything else you want to add before we head out?
0: Uh, the last thing is, just for all our listeners, if you have a chance, give us a like, a thumbs up, or a star, or multiple stars, preferably multiple stars. And, and if you have a few extra minutes, give us a review. Tell us how you love the show. If you don't love the show, shut up.
1: That's exactly what I was going to say. (laughs) Uh, All right, folks. That will wrap up this episode of Skirmish Supremacy. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to another episode of Skirmish Supremacy. To see more of the antics that Nick and I do, you can check us out on Facebook at Skirmish Supremacy. We also have Twitter, which we can be reached at Skirmish Supreme, because apparently Skirmish Supremacy does not fit in Twitter. And if you want to email us directly, you can reach us at tim at skirmish or nick at skirmish supremacy.com. Thanks for listening.